from the trenches. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to From the Trenches, real life in the accounting industry. My name is David Boyer from Change GPS. Joined with me is Paul Meisner from Freedom Mentoring in his True Blue Zero t-shirt. We're brought to you by BGL, Australia's number one corporate compliance and superannuation software and the outsourced accountant taking care of all of your offshore accounting needs. I'm going to be at the Outsourced Accountant Melbourne Roadshow this week, next week. I should check my diary. This week, Paul... Big week in accounting. Thank you very much, David. Hello, listeners. Hello, all. Uh, a big week, as always. Uh, coronavirus toilet paper seems to have coming back to the shelves. It's going to be, I swear, the toilet paper index. Uh, panic, I think, from now on will be known as how much toilet paper has been sold. Ooh, like the futures, toilet paper futures. Toilet paper futures. Uh, anyway, it won't be the market. Just what we won't need, the another complex market. financial derivative. That's <laughs> yeah. what's going to get us through this. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, David, you're at uh, the outsource accountant, Roger. I am heading you to Noosa for the Future Advisor Conference. We've uh, we've had our first speaker go down with, uh, with the virus. We got an email today that someone is in quarantine because their friend caught the virus. We're trying to work out whether Zoom's going to work or not work. It is going to be a very it's going to be a very high powered room in in Noosa. Going really to be a- challenging that uh, beautiful one day perfect the next Monica at Queensland coronavirus the day after that. Uh, I don't think he's in in Noosa, but uh, and Noosa's apparently going to rain because apparently there's a cyclone. So anyway, apart oh, from that, David, up to be uh, I am heading there tomorrow. Um, but yes, and then we're, we're of course coming up to Receipt Bank Exchange. You, you get asked to do a lot of speaking gigs. Did you say yes to Noosa because it's a legitimate junket? Yes, that you do not take that long to answer questions, and listeners will know that about you. <laughs> you just got uh, I had hoped. I had hoped for more golf. <laughs> I had hoped for more golf. I don't even think I'm taking my clubs. I haven't decided yet. Uh, I, do, I do. I've been to the RACV Resort oh, before. Noose was God. pretty good. That's anyway, what silence sounds like. <laughs> I, I've never been silent in my life. That was that was a long pause. All uh, right, let's get into it. Right, uh, best on ground. Let's. For me, coronavirus obviously is uh, everywhere at the moment. A couple of things have crossed my uh, smartphone recently. One is a great video by Jacinda Ardern, the poster person for uh, polit- for politicians oh. everywhere, what everyone uh, hopes government would be like. Instead of these people who front, front the media with uh, propaganda types and political people. She got two scientists into a room. They even had, uh, it wasn't a puppet, it was sort of a basically how they would explain the virus to children. It is a wonderful video. Uh, link is in the show notes. Just love the practical information. Actually dispelling some of the hype, dispelling some of the myths. This isn't like measles. It's not airborne. Wash your hands. How do you wash your hands? Let's get serious about the risks. Who is at risk? What happens if you get it? What is the likelihood? That kind of stuff. Terrific information there in that video. So, so what just stands out to me about that video? It's really grassroots. Like it's, it looks like they've just got a regular microphone. Then they're in like it looks like they're in an office kitchen. Like it just looks like they're three women sitting around having a chat about looking after their families in the coronavirus. Like this is not big media spend awareness campaign stuff. 
Uh, she was joined really by a chief media. science advisor, Juliet Gerard, and Michelle Dickinson, a British nanotechnologist and science educator. It, it was a, it was an amazing video. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, on top of my is a three part best on ground because it was all coronavirus information. There is a data pack uh, on a website called informationisbeautiful.net Ooh. under their visualization series. Ooh. This is some wonderful uh, graphs talking about um, the majority of infections are mild, the bulk of people recover, um, talking about the age demographic, who's at risks, talking about which pre-existing conditions risk you higher risk, some some really um, interesting information about fatality rates, the variance by countries. And one great uh, graph on how contagious and deadly, uh, putting it on a graph of uh, other things that we're more familiar with, smallpox, polio, measles, chickenpox, etc. cetera. Um, everybody, accountants especially, David, do like uh, a good infographic. I am, I, or a good graph. Uh, I am absolutely the same. Uh, and my very quick third part to coronavirus facts, not scaremongering, uh, as we know, has been happening a lot. Will Lopez, the accountant uh, ambassador, I think, the year of the ambassador, uh, at Gusto. Will's appeared on the worst of ground, so he's making his trip across to the front half of the podcast. David, he has written a great reference, a a little bit US-centric, which is fine because it's US software, uh, on a business guide for putting up, uh, for putting up, for managing this uh, response to coronavirus. Some really good things, how to handle an employee if it happens, some really practical stuff, look after your staff. Um, you need to keep a track of all of the um, experiences, but be mindful of employee privacy, a very good blog will. Uh, it's fascinated by the data you've got on this data information is beautiful website. It's great. It's just it's, it's actually like sucked in my attention. It is good. Get to the bottom. The disease deaths per day worldwide. It's yeah, but the, the, check out the mentions in the media. Let's just Ebola had 11.1 million mentions in the media. COVID-19 have already had 1.1 billion uh, mentions in the media. That is, rid- that is that ridiculous. Is, no, that's, that's misleading. That's heavily misleading. Okay. Because there is so much more media now. That, me- that media could include social media. That could include... You've got more twenty-four hour news cycles, media things. You, you actually social media, have, I think, if it if it if it counts, and it might even count the retweets even, as another general, mention. You, you have news all the time now. The Ebola outbreak was ten, was it 10, 15 years ago? Like you just didn't have the insane media cycles you have now. So you have okay, a bigger volume of media. I SARS, think. arguably, we were in a oh, similar so in a similar notice. size. The fatality rate varying by country. Australia is uh, right up there. We are right up there for fatality rates, 3.2%, The 1.6. The fatality rate, yes, not the cases, the, the death per case. Yeah, Very so interesting. If you, if anyway. You do, if you do get it here, you've got a good, better chance of well, – let's move on. That's Again, it's hard. And you look, at the, uh, the, you look at the per age, though. Like I think it's up to about 18% mortality rate for the yeah. elderly. Yep. What do you got? All right. I cannot stress this enough. 
follow billionaire Anthony Pratt on social media because he does it all himself. So this is not, you know, Jeff Bezos must have media teams around him working out what goes through his social media. Like a lot of these, when you're at that level, your social media is managed by someone. He does it himself. You can tell because there's spelling mistakes and all sorts of stuff. He, he talks about business advice, how to engage customers, the Carlton Football Club. And he's put this thing out on this time on LinkedIn. By the way, his LinkedIn name is Anthony Pratt C Twitter in capitals. This guy's worth eight and a half billion dollars. Uh, here's what he said. The other trend that the coronavirus reinforces is deglobalization. Western companies will come home and manufacturing countries where they sell rather than have long supply chains from countries with sovereign risk. Now, this is a guy who knows, like his business is making the boxes that ships goods around the world. He legitimately understands global logistics and the global supply chain. Very interesting angle. I wonder if we're going to see uh, people changing supply chains to have a higher local concentration. If so, very good for small business who can be a part of that. Interesting here for me, the definition of sovereign risk, though, I don't think fits that. It's more about the risk where a a government of another country can't make its debt payments. He's talking about sovereign risk on a supply chain, though. Like that, that I think the context is pretty clear. I mean, anyway, I think I think it's the wrong word of the, the wrong risk, but I get the point. I, I look, I still think the businesses won't change. The, the big, large companies won't change necessarily their manufacture until the price point. Yes, risk weighs a point. I think that I think still we are seeing a too great a discount in offshore manufacture. So if you, and that's actually really interesting because if you talk to people who question the growth at all cost global economy, one of the arguments is that things are unsustainably cheap. So to, if you accept that to enable continuity of supply, you need to manufacture locally, then you have to accept the prices go up. It's fascinating. Will people. This could be like a bit of a global economic reset event, perhaps a bit more, well, you know, the GFC was different. It was kind of forced on us. But this can really force people to change their business practices. Anyway, what else you got? ground yep. for me, uh, Vice. I follow Vice on Instagram. We don't put a lot of Instagram content up on From the Trenches. We don't. I don't think there is much, is it? It's, we're not, it's not hard to put photos on uh, on a podcast. <laughs> uh, Vice, the, um, the, what are they like, millennials? I don't know. They're just like interesting news. Uh, how to work from home and not feel like a lonely garbage slug, really little infographic. I work from home, so I clicked on this. Number one, don't start working the moment you wake up. 100% true. Like 100% true because you have no delineation between work and your private time or your family time. Number two, don't work from your bed. I've never worked from my bed. I don't, I don't understand how people can do that. Number th- oh, But if you must work from your bed, at least make your bed. Bit, bit of tongue in cheek there. That's actually a fair, fair point. Make a point to actually talk to other people. You know, I'm on the phone all day. Like, I'm legitimately on the phone on video calls six hours a day. I'm ticked for that, but I think it's a great point. Like, don't alienate yourself. Uh, set a quitting time and make a plan for the evening. Now, I saw this a week ago, and since then, every night I've made a plan. My plan is usually uh, Ellie gets home at five, so I spend an hour and a half with Ellie dinner, muck around a little bit, have a play, get her to bed, and then, and then I usually go back to work for a couple of hours. The last week I've actually planned things every night and I have noticed greater performance during the day. Interesting. There's often um, – uh, there was a great blog years and years and years ago about working from home, which was that actually having a 
room. So actually having a home office and having that trigger, especially more for if you've got family with uh, a wife and kids, once you shut that door, you know, if, if you're out in general population, you put up with the noise. Yep. If you shut that door, you are in air quotes, don't work on a podcast, a, working. We've got a, a separate room, which is my office. And if that door is closed, um, it's closed. I don't go in there. I make sure that the stuff, I leave my work stuff in there so I don't have to go in. I, have to go, I, don't, have, I don't keep personal stuff in there. Uh, finally, best on ground for me, Paul. Interesting job ad put up by Link Advisors. This is the title of the job ad. Senior accountant, no compliance, help more clients than ever before. And the angle that they've taken, they're looking for a business development manager and they want an ex-accountant. Now, I, it is almost impossible, and, and we've spoken about this before, business models where the person who wins the work is not the partner. We've, we've spoken about the challenge, the yep. right way model we spoke about. Um, very, very challenging thing to do. So what Link have done, they've tried, they've tried to target an accountant. And the angle that they're taking, the value proposition is, are you an experienced accountant, sick of doing tax compliance, love client contact, in person, on the phone, written form, get a kick out of making positive difference to people you interact with, maybe contemplating a move to a commercial role or a software company to escape compliance. It's interesting because working for a tech company is the new, uh, I used to be an accountant, now I work in recruitment. Like that that, that was the old thing. Well, it used to be public practice accounting to corporate accounting. Well, that's what they're talking about. For, for the pay bump. So yeah. they're really trying to get in the mind of somebody who they'd want for this role and say, hey, you can still stay in public practice, but have a bit of a different take of what the position description is within the public practice world. A really interesting way to show that this role is different to stand out and I hope they get some really good, interesting applicants for it. It was interesting given a lot of roles do do seem to have an element of compliance, especially in public practice. But, you know, but, but you, it is interesting. Oh, but, you know, I know, I'll, you, I'll share some of my experience here. When I'm, you know, sort of doing demos for Change GPS and I'm having conversations with accountants, I have no doubt my accounting knowledge and experience helps. Because you get asked a question, oh, what about something a bit obscure, primary production income? You at least know a little bit to talk about it. You're not, you're not going to give tax advice on it. You're not a guru, but you know enough about that person's world to be, da- you know, was it damaging enough in a boardroom, just to be the phrase? So it's, I think it's interesting. I hope they get some good applicants. It's certainly a different angle and, and it's the first time I think we've seen a highlight of that move to a software company because obviously that is a big move. You look at a lot of people who are BDMs with particularly zero, um, as you would, right, have that experience. So you you actually can see both sides of the fence. Yes, you might be selling them software, but you did at one stage sit in their seat. Uh, Very interesting. Worst on ground. Worst on ground. Well, in in true uh, Paul Meissner style. You got more worse than best. I do have more worse than best. (laughs) You only had one best this week. Uh, Three parts to it. There was actually three bests on on the same. And your best was a global pandemic. It was, it was. It was the response to a global... I think I did all right. I'm bringing a little bit to the table. This one's an interesting one to me. Slightly, slightly difficult to bring up. And, and I want to I be clear about, about the angle. Stick with me, listeners. The marketing of International Women's Day has had, I think... And, and there's an article on this article. The link is in the show notes. 
where there is some some discussion around has this become a Valentine's Day type hallmark holiday? The, the article you're talking about is from Women's Agenda and the headline's perfect. The last thing women need is a corporate version of Mother's Day. And that, and that's and there is a quote from that, that from the Guardian's uh, Alexandra Topping observed International Women's Day, and I quote: "Is in danger of becoming little more than a corporate Valentine's Day, with companies jumping on the bandwagon to whitewash their brands rather than promote women's equality." You know, in the accounting industry, we, we saw International Women's Day. Yes, there were great parts, and yes, the women the women I spoke to absolutely valued the highlight. I just think that perhaps for the betterment of the cause, not being a woman, can do largely can do what they want. But for it to boil down to sending cupcakes and having marketing awards, yes, there was a lot more in it. I'm not limiting it to that, but there did seem, as the person in the Guardian would suggest, quite a bit of uh, corporates jumping on the bandwagon to whitewash their brands. I think. Real discussions, real change, uh, where certainly where it's required and real discussions should be the power of the day, not necessarily just hype. I don't know. Interesting, I'm sure. <laughs> Listeners will let me know what they think. Mate, this sort of stuff that are marketing teams, oh, we need something to talk about. What have we got International Women's Day? And it definitely looks like there is a lot of shallow awareness pieces done around it. I asked Deborah Anderson, who is on the board of the Tax Practitioners Board, uh, who celebrated 10 years this year. What did we have before? Hi, that? Deb. Big shout out to Deb. I like Deb. What did okay. we have before the Tax Practitioners Board? Wild Can't West. Remember. Wild West. <laughs> Can't remember. Anyway, I asked Deb, um, what's the female-male ratio in tax practitioner land these days? Female tax practitioners have grown from 22% in 2010 to 28% in 2019. I'll be honest, that sounds really slow. I have something for you. It sounds like I have really something slow for you, growth. David. I found this and I forgot oh, to tell you good. in the pregame. This comes oh, the from tax the tax agent breakup. The TPB. This what is from got? their 18 because their 19 didn't split out the percentages. Tax agents, um, 73% male, 27% female. And as you can see by this sort of bar graph without any necessarily percentages, mm. fairly skewed to 60 plus. Um, Bass agents uh, by gender uh, and age. Nineteen percent uh, male bass agents, eighty-one percent female, and tax financial advisors oh. being more in that financial planners. Seventy-nine percent are female. Seventy-nine percent male for the tax financial advisors. Twenty-one percent female. Very interesting that the financial advisors seem to be skewered quite heavily into the twenty, to the forty to forty-nine bracket. Age, age bracket. Yeah. Age exactly. bracket. Bass agents are in the forty to forty-nine, fifty to fifty-nine bracket, uh, and tapers off quite quickly. Those are interesting stats, David. And and because don't they just validate what you expect? Uh, absolutely, in tax agents, a seventy thirty in uh, in male female is not. I, th- I think it would be very within the ballpark to be expected, as is 80-20, the reverse, yeah. females to males yeah, in the – interesting, there are 15,638. There were, as at 20 June 18, uh, 15,500 bass agents and 42,500 tax agents. So that's where sort of that, even though it's a, a relative flip side, there certainly are more tax agents. But that was interesting because you were after numbers. I wanted numbers to back it up, yeah. Um, worst on ground for me, we are having the wrong conversation about Scott 
uh, it's not Scott Pape, about Scott Cam's $320,000 endorsement of the Trades Apprenticeship Program. And it's, a, it's become a sloppy debate. So it's become a tall poppy debate. Scott got paid 320 grand to create awareness for the apprenticeship programs in Australia. So far, he hasn't done much. It's like four social media posts and it, it does look quite low. The way he's been grilled in the Senate has been grilled as if what hours have you put into the job? But the job yep. of an ambassador or an awareness role is... Influencer. To, in, it's an influencer. It's to create attention, particularly on social media. That's what this is designed for, to a cause. Now, I can't imagine what an apprenticeship costs the Australian taxpayer. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 150 to 200 grand. By the time you add on government administration, marketing, all this sort of stuff, it can really creep in, including the, the actual wages that the small business pays. Um, it, it's a lot. 320 grand in the scheme of that program, not a huge amount. But the quality conversation was really sloppy because they were trying to pair the dollars that he earned to the hours that he worked, not the value he created, which makes a logical jump, Paul, into value pricing. Scott has been torn apart on social media for this. And the reason is, part of all, when he got on Sky News to defend himself, he probably could have done a bit of a better job and kind of had a go at the presenter, which is never a good look. He's been torn apart on social media mostly because people don't appreciate the dishonesty or the trickery that appears to be in earning 320 grand for only doing a few social posts. 350. Think, 350, thank you. I think when it comes to pricing, transparency wins. And I, I am having a go at value pricing here because I think it's an unscalable pricing methodology for the majority of accountants and, and particularly in small practice you don't have enough clients to deal with the bell curve of varying profitability on a job-by-job basis that you get in value pricing. Um, you know where the value is for accountants, Paul? Charging $350 an hour. That is the money you get for your 20 years' experience, for the training that you have, and I think the transparent pricing will win any day of the week. It's the lack of transparency in this that has caused people, plus combined with some Aussie tall poppy syndrome, that's caused so I, the Twitterati to I it. disagree, David. I think, especially apart from your thank you for your views on running, <laughs> running, a, running a small practice, which you at least have. Um, I think, to me, value pricing is just outcome pricing, and and the outcome has a value. What they're arguing here is he hasn't delivered an outcome. They're not actually talking about. They haven't asked the question. No, the, the Senate They've estimates asked the wrong question. Senate estimates are stupid. There was a couple of very interesting points in here. I want David you know Scott needs to go watch Kerry Packer in front of the Senate Estimates Committee to work out how to handle these people. He did. I mean, he did make some points, right? So he basically says um, the the plan was to start the tour in February and March. So. A lot of the stuff he did for the whole arrangement hasn't been delivered yet. It's all coming up in February and March. The Senate should have asked about the level of output for that money and he should have been able to better articulate the output is coming and by the time we end up at the end of the process, I hope you'll see the value. Clearly, it didn't happen. But I guess... To me, I mean, we know watching and hearing about Senate estimates, it really is far more of a circus and slapping the other the other political side with dirt than it is actually having reasonable debate. It's yeah, worse but, than Twitter. But, uh, potentially, yes, but it's had a bad impact for uh, Scott. He's a bit of a love dozzy hero, isn't he? He is. And, and he'll play very well in tapes, I think. He will absolutely play well in tapes. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's go next. Uh, can I do another worst on ground, Paul? Of course, mate. Uh 
banks need to be banned from saying we are open to business. The Australian Banking Association met with the Treasurer today to talk about impacts on coronavirus, what they're going to do to help business owners, the usual stuff, similar to what we saw with bushfire victims, um, amnesty on loan repayments, certain fees getting out of if you, if you experience financial hardship, give the bank a call. And the chair chairman of the ABA said banks are open for business. If you're an accountant who truly believes the accountants are, that the banks are open for business, please message us at From the Trenches. They should not be allowed to say it. No one believes it. And somebody should hold them accountable to that line. Well, open for business in terms of taking deposits, David. Not, oh, yeah, not, yeah. Not, yeah. not yeah, giving very little on them. Not giving. And it's true the doors capital. are open, but geez, they, they, they say that line because it creates an expectation that they're doing deals, and they're not. And they are more and more the deals that are getting done. Uh, more and more reliant on property, not less. They're less reliant on cash flow, less reliant on balance sheets. Still lending to accounting firms, by the way. So. Absolutely. <laughs> can I can I actually say something interesting? That he, I, and I will not be very careful not to mention any names, although we are talking about banks here. I had lunch today, David, with someone who works for a bank, and we were talking about the impact of coronavirus. One of the uh, one of the banks that uh, this person, uh, the bank that this person worked for, was talking about the fact that in certain business critical roles, staff are being split into A teams and B teams and working different days, so that if sickness goes through the office, they don't have to quarantine. I'm talking this is smart. I'm not saying this is – I'm just talking this is – this is stuff very that – interesting. This is stuff in big business that I've never seen. There is an A team that worked – I think it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday and a B team that did Tuesday, Thursday or, or you'd something. Be, you'd, you'd be ribbing the B team if you were the A team. Were. But, it was, the name. but it was really interesting. But also that their, in, their IT infrastructure – only allowed uh, the numbers, forget the numbers, but for a sec, let's say for the, for the sake of this, 10% of their global staff to be connected remotely at any one time. So actually the, the, there is also a, a split shift in terms of being able to remotely access the system. So, Paul, I had breakfast today oh, there you go. with a global tech giant, not in the accounting space, who said they ran a test where they put all employees for five minutes during the workday, all employees had to disconnect from their local server and log into the VPN. They did it to test Testing one, loads. Could the VPN deal with the load, which it could, and two, test that staff knew how to log into the VPN, which In case they did <laughs> so, again. IT support. Shoot. Hello. Yeah. Ding, ding. <laughs> IT support. That- Where's the any key? <laughs> but isn't that clever? To to do it on so that people knew how to do it. It's actually, and you know what's going to you know what this is going to expose just how pathetic NBN is because there is no way NBN can deal with a load of this many people potentially working from home. My NBN, my home gets tethered at three o'clock in the afternoon because all the kids come home from school and play Call of Duty and the. The local node gets slammed. This will be a very interesting discussion on that. But anyway, the, the listeners, there was some 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 uh, insight into yeah, no, into how big business we'll that wasn't in the show notes. Oh, you got one more. We'll try to backfill. I could do have one more. Um, KPMG. God, we love ribbing the big feds. KPMG uh, are being forced to retake 
their, uh, I believe it's the audit exam, um, their independence exam for uh, all 600-odd KPMG Australia partners and more than 5,900 client-facing staff will be forced to resit the consulting firm's internal independence exam amid an investigation into cheating on the annual assessment. I'm quoting from the thing. The firm has taken the unprecedented step after a whistleblower. It's always a whistleblower. It's always a whistleblower. Complaint that's just self-report. That model answers to the 20-question multiple-choice exam at the end of the course were being improperly shared. how How many times do these big firms have to, like, get found out to do this stuff until people, especially the people who are giving them free passes, letting them write their own rules, letting them letting them shift the deck tears on the Titanic of audit files and all this sort of stuff and, and the, the financial services regime where, you know, it's just how many times do we have to see such big companies fail so epically before they're actually, it's taken out of their hands and they have to do it externally. My dad's got the best quote on this. He said, um, how come they can get away with that stuff for so long, but I use the old CA logo and I get wrapped over the knuckles in my practice audit? <laughs> Where are the professional bodies to have a look at at this level? Very interesting. Uh, another one, uh, Atrium Legal. I skipped over that one, did we? Are you going to do that? Oh, I didn't know. I went straight to the. I went straight to the. Uh, I went straight to KPMG, Atrium Legal. So uh, Atrium Legal had raised uh, seventy five point five million in funding. Uh, Justin Cand, he was Twitch, I think, originally uh, created a legal software and law firm startup. Atrium shut down after failing to figure out how to deliver better efficiency than a traditional law firm. A very interesting, this, are we a a professional services firm? Are we a software firm? Who are we? What are we doing? But it it, it was a really interesting point. Back in September 18, in an article, uh, the headline was, Atrium raises $65 million uh, to replace lawyers with machine learning. Uh, So it was, again, all of these things with startups, uh, constant articles, David, about raising money and they're going to take over the world. Effectively, they they sacked their in-house lawyers to try to hemorrhage some of the costs. Some of their lawyers spit off into a traditional-ish uh, law firm. They stuck with the software and just, yeah, and basically had to close the doors, laid off uh, all of their 100 employees, luckily returned some of its funding uh, to uh, investors and ended up with the law firm continuing to operate. Very interesting. Um, when I saw that you put this in, I went straight to Lachlan McKnight's LinkedIn. Lachlan McKnight is the CEO of Legal Vision, who is probably the bigger legal services disruptor in Australia, um, who made a comment that oh, I've lost the post. I've got to get it back up. This was a month ago. So this was before they completely folded. This was just as they pivoted. Um, he fully supports the original goal of Atrium, that that is the way to disrupt uh the legal business model. Well, surely it's not the exact way to disrupt. No, I the think it's, ambition it's, was it, right. It's the, it's the general postcode of disruption. Like, legal vision is really successful. So I think you said they're at 20 mil annual recurring revenue at the moment over six years. So they built that slow over six years. They did raise some money in the early days, but not turbocharged growth. And it seems to me like they're doing really well and um, have disrupted the legal services model 
through the way they talk about technology is more in the way the practice is managed, I think, rather than machine learning to write legal advice. I think a couple of things for me. One is that it is is just because you run software and just because you build software doesn't you, there is still a, there is still a long road and you've got to do it in the right way. You've got to focus on actually improving the experience for customers. There was some real interesting bits about when the when the law firm split away from the software, the client experience dropped. They didn't know whether the software was representing them or the law firm. You know, interesting where, you, where your software focuses so much on automation and drops the key ball of client experience. Really, really interesting. But uh, How are we going to do a show if I'm COVIDed? We do some of them remotely anyway. Yeah, it's going to be hard to talk with a mask, a podcast with a mask. Anyway. We shouldn't joke about you it. You will tell us next week on the podcast. Otherwise, listeners, I uh, love your work. Feel free, reach out to us. If you see us on the road, come up to us. Please email us, tweet, LinkedIn, uh, get in touch with us because we love hearing from you. Otherwise, have a great week. Thanks again for listening to an episode of From the Trenches. David and I love to hear from listeners. So you can reach out if you've got feedback or story ideas, get in touch. I can be reached on Twitter at Paul Meissner underscore or on LinkedIn, Paul Meissner. I'm on Twitter at David Boyar, B-O-Y-A-R, on LinkedIn, David Boyar. From the trenches.